0: Welcome to The Rundown. I'm Carrie Saldo, your host. We're doing something a bit different today here on the show. We're going to run down stories that we think will be biggies here in 2024, and to do that, Joining me today inside the NEPM studios, a voice that will be familiar to many of our listeners, NEPM's own Adam Frenier. And uh, two voices that you might not be so acquainted with, but by the end of this next 30 minutes or so, you absolutely will. We have Peyton North, the executive editor of Reminder Publishing, and Larry Parnas, executive editor of The Republican Newspaper. Good morning. Thanks for being here.
1: Good morning. You bet
0: so now to this week's stories i created a bit of a list and uh, let's just run it down right this story really got me thinking about you know ben franklin's old adage there there's nothing certain in life except death and taxes so i've gathered you all here today to talk about death thanks for coming (laughs) in no no taxes taxes okay let's uh let's talk about this this was boston business journal that reported this out and western mass has the dubious distinction of being So, so expensive when it comes to taxes, not only residential, but commercial rates as well. The commercial rates were really the piece that shocked me when I started looking at individual numbers. This is a quote from the journal story. The list of the top 20 communities in the highest tax rate this year, once again, dominated by cities and towns in western Massachusetts. New entrants this year include Middlefield and Buckland, while Russell and Dalton to, I'm sure they're excited to have dropped off that top 20 list. Median residential tax rate among all Massachusetts cities and towns this year was set at $1,281 per $1,000 of assessed value. But here in Western Mass, we're looking at like $16, $17 before we can even get started at the residential rate. Uh, Larry, you've, you've been a longtime reporter and editor in our region. Taxes are not a new deal for you. What do you think when you when you hear see this pulled out in the Boston Business Journal.
2: Well, <clears throat> remind people that quickly that it's not necessarily leading to the highest tax bills. It's Correct. the rate. So uh, communities that have uh, median house values that are on the lower end for Massachusetts, they have a higher rate. These towns need to raise a certain amount of money. Um, it's a funny mix. I mean, Longmeadow had led this list for a long, long time and it's been replaced by Plainfield, which essentially has absolutely no commercial uh, development or, or commercial tax base.
3: Uh,
0: Similar in Palmer, where I live, which I've been there about five or six years now, and I was shocked when we first moved to Palmer at that individual rate. It's come down a bit now, but it was close to 20 bucks mm-hmm. when I first moved there. And we have nothing large to speak of, right? We have a library. We have fire departments. We have all those sort of infrastructure things that you think about for a, a city or town, but uh, no no commercial tax well, base to long think matter that talk
2: a, of. Sometimes these rates, these high rates per thousand are there because towns have invested. And you know, lest you think that this is town hall putting one over on taxpayers, often residents of these towns have agreed to invest through Proposition two and a half overrides. Uh so they right, because some we're set.
0: funding what? Schools and mm-hmm. roads when they're not state when there's not state roads um and and things like that. Uh, on the commercial tax rate side. I just, for fun, looked at Boston. You know, we're about 25 bucks per thousand in Boston. Out here in western Massachusetts, you've got closer to $40 in many of our cities like Springfield and Pittsfield. And, of course, I'm using round numbers here. So, cities and towns, don't send us nasty letters about how you're under $40. We got that. We got that for sure. Uh, but what is this doing to, to – Businesses, Peyton, who want to come here, want to develop what they're doing, but they're looking at that tax rate maybe getting a little bit of sticker shock.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And it's obviously increasingly challenges, challenging for businesses to want to come to these communities because of that. But not only are they met with that as a challenge, they're also met with the public as a challenge. Because when you talk about bringing in businesses, commercial businesses... You're talking about possibly affecting the character of the communities, and that's what we're hearing from residents. For example, in Hamden, for a couple years, they were talking about two potential storage facilities coming to town. And Hamden doesn't have a lot of commercial businesses to speak of, so as an outsider, you would think they'd be welcoming of that. It'll help their taxes, But they weren't. They were worried that this will greatly affect their community, its look, its feel, the traffic, who will be coming to their town. And those were all concerns that, I mean, they even made a group of Save Hamden citizens with their own lawyer that they hired to speak against this. So I think when it comes down to it, not only are these businesses experiencing the challenges of affording to be in these towns, but they're also experiencing the challenges from the public. Mm. And it's not making it very... um, A very cooperative or collaborative experience for them.
0: Adam, as you, uh, as a reporter, you watch this push-pull, whether it's the residential rate or the commercial rate, what sticks out for you?
1: Well, I think when you look at smaller rural communities, while they don't want to price anybody out of town, they also have to afford to be able to do business, too. I'll give you an example. Deerfield, for instance, had terrible flooding, and they had to shell out two and a half million dollars just about to fix roads, to get things back up and running again last summer and I spoke with the select board chair after they received a million and a half dollar grant from the state to cover a lot of these expenses. And they told me that if it wasn't for this money, we would have to have chopped, you know, a good portion of our school budget. We just don't have the margins to work with. But, you know, one of the, a little different in Deerfield, they do have some industry, but small communities, you know, everything's on the back of the taxpayer and they just don't, you know, they they can't raise the commercial rate, but leave the, the residential rate alone. So it's a real problem. And, you know, They work on skinny margins, and when something bad happens, you know, it goes back to the taxpayer. And, you know, when that's your only source of income besides whatever state aid you can get, it it becomes a very difficult situation.
2: There really is kind of different classes of communities in terms of what they'll tolerate for tax rates. Uh, Chicopee has a higher commercial tax rate, but a lot of the smaller communities in western Massachusetts, they just don't want to go to the split tax rate. Uh, They are afraid of alienating the few businesses they have and uh, just aren't willing to take that leap, which wouldn't necessarily make a big difference anyway.
0: Yeah, I think Greenfield's one of those communities, right, that has kept a a singular tax rate. Well, it's an issue that's not not going anywhere, as Ben Franklin reminded us, right? Like, we've got those two options, death and taxes. And I was looking at a story out of the Berkshire Eagle regarding the Greylock Glen, which is a a topic that will be very familiar to many of us sitting here around the table for one reason, because it's been around for the better part of six decades at this point. The Eagle did this this great breakout where they looked at the timeline of it just to give us a reminder. You know, we're going back to the 1960s here, where we saw legal challenges successfully sort of scrap plans for a massive resort with skiing and shopping and trams. And then you jump ahead 40 years or so, 30 years or so, excuse me. And uh, you know, Governor Bill Weld comes in and says, uh, "We're blocking what was going to be a 20 million dollar influx of cash to what would have been then a condo project." So there's been variations on this. And I should back up for a second for folks who aren't familiar. So the Greylock Glen has is a piece of property below Mount Greylock. <laughs> and, and this is on the Adams side of the state's highest peak. And there's been a range of different development ideas. There's a very interesting proposal that's now on the table. Um, but, you know, when Weld blocked in the 90s, then, interestingly, it was Governor Jane Swift who came in and put the final stake in the heart of it. And she's a she's a Berkshireite. So, uh, as we look at this project, it could be a huge boon to what is a small community with a smaller tax base. But it's been a complicated process. Adam, as you've if you looked at the most recent development, you know, you think we're gonna move ahead here and 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 see things actually come to fruition as planned or are we going to just continue to have stops, and curveballs.
1: Well, I think my crystal ball's a little foggy on this one. I wouldn't (laughs) dare to try to predict what's been taking place going back to 20 years before I was born. Fair enough, fair enough. uh, I I will say that it seems like it's a worthwhile project. It seems like it, it would be a boon to the northern Berkshire area. You know, I think a lot of people think of Berkshire tourism, they think of southern Berkshire. And I think that this would help, you know, along with things like Mass Mocha and you know I know the the state representative there in the former North Adams mayor John Barrett was has been very insistent and a champion of this project and you know I I have a feeling that they're gonna try to push as hard as they can to get this governor uh, Maura Healey seems to be willing to bring more resources to Western Massachusetts, or at least she says she is. So this would be one way to uh, to certainly demonstrate that.
0: There's a great headline out of the Eagle. Uh, this was a story from two years ago, I think, Larry, where the the headline says, Greylock Glen is where big development went to die. Why it's different this time.
2: <laughs> I, I wrote that story. <laughs> uh, the Outdoor Recreation Center uh, is going to open this year. That's definitely moving forward. Uh, the big breakthrough came uh, about two years ago when uh, environmental groups that had been opposed to this didn't want to see the roughly 1,000 acres on the town side of the 12,000-acre state reservation developed commercially. So they were supportive of the idea of having an outdoor recreation center and camping, and then possibly uh, a, a lodge and conference center. So... What they learned from this 60 years of misfires here and, and up there in the woods, there's still a place that the local WAGs called the Rebar Forest, <laughs> where there's construction that got started and never, never advanced. Yeah. So the, um, the what they learned is take it one step at a time. doesn't have to be a big, big concept, as has always been sort of the push here. And the Outdoor Recreation Center will start. They've just hired the former Pittsfield Police Chief to be its director, Mike Wynn. Um it won't be transformative f- for Adams, but over time, it will definitely be an econ- uh, have an economic value for Adams, which really needs it.
0: Hmm. When I think about uh, the economic piece, Larry really sparked this for me because I remember when Mass MoCA was first being built out and then being rolled out in Mass in North Adams. There was this narrative that was around it: it was just it's going to elevate North Adams. It's going to be like this economic savior for North Adams. And we all know, as we've watched this story develop, it's been a wonderful place to go as a tourist, check out some really interesting art, but it has not been that savior for the city of North Adams. But you
2: might, if you live in North Adams, you might think, without Mass Mocha, what would the sort of the pulse of be, this city be? And, and be, it would be very, very scary.
0: Absolutely. Would be, it would be a very different place to be. So as we think about that pulse for Adams, as this comes to build out, you know, Peyton, what are you going to be watching there uh, around the entire issue?
4: I think I would be hesitant to put that kind of pressure on this project being the economic driver for the community. I mean, we see that with MGM Springfield to an extent. There was this immense pressure that MGM was going to completely turn Springfield around. And while I think they've done amazing work, they brought jobs, I love going to MGM, but I don't think it has fully lived up to the potential that people thought it would. And so I think when it comes to any sort of project like this, I would just be hesitant to say, hey, I'm going to have all of these people from Western Mass coming because it is a little bit out there. And when you talk about Mass Mocha, I just went for the first time last year for a wedding and I loved it. It was beautiful. But I haven't felt really inclined to go back since because it's it's a It's a trip to get out there. So I think with this project, it comes down to really solid marketing in Western Mass and also not
0: expecting it to be this massive boon at first. And I think it'll be also really interesting to watch the push pull between people from outside Adams, North Adams, the immediate northern Berkshire area, and then uh, people who live there. So that sort of town and outsider push pull.
2: Yeah. Uh, Those spaces already get a tremendous amount of use. Uh, This is not new to uh, people who like to do off-road biking, fat fat bikes and all that, it gets heavy use. It's used for cross-country skiing, even people skinning up the mountain the old-fashioned way. So or it's,
0: rocketing down the Thunderbolt if yeah, we have my God. snow. <laughs>
2: and uh, all the, the statistics bear out the promise of outdoor recreation. People, post-pandemic, they still like going outside, having space between them, and getting healthy, and it's just it's really good for the state because the state did make a significant investment here. It's going to pay back.
0: Yeah. And even if you're not hiking up the mountain, right, it's just a beautiful place to go and leave your cell phone in the car (laughs) and Commune with nature, take in the natural resources, the natural beauty that, that is this region. It's a really amazing and, and beautiful place. We'll see what happens with the development piece of it for sure. You're listening to the rundown here on 88.5 NEPM. I am your host, Carrie Saldo, and I am joined in the studio this morning by Peyton North. And Larry Parnas, the executive editors, respectively, of Reminder Publishing and the, Re- the Republican Newspaper. And we also have Adam Frenier. You'll hear you'll recognize his voice as a key team here at NEPM. Stay tuned. We're going to keep running down the stories that we think are going to be biggies here during 2024. We'll be back right after this break. Welcome back to The Rundown here on 88.5 NEPM. I am your host, Carrie Saldo. I'm joined this morning in studio by three folks who are key teams in the Western Massachusetts news ecosystem. We have Peyton North from Reminder Publishing, we have, who's the executive editor there, Larry Parnas, who is executive editor at the Republican newspaper, and Adam Frenier, a reporter here at NEPM. Grateful to have you all here this morning. Thanks so much. Let's uh, let's keep rolling here, looking at some of the top stories we expect to see continue to develop here in 2024 and uh, among those is the african heritage reparation assembly out in amherst and uh, it's it's been a really fascinating process to watch this happen it came out of the the tragic murder of george floyd over two years ago it sparked a citizen's petition and outrage a demand for an apology for the treatment, the historic uh, mistreatment of African-Americans in Amherst and the broader world. From a financial standpoint, the result of it was a $2 million commitment from that community. It could be spent on youth programming and housing (coughs) is sort of one of the thoughts of where some of that funding might go. It was an extensive report, over 160 pages. I'll read from it. The notion of reparations is not new, but is as old as human conflict. Harm committed against a person or persons heals by way of acknowledgement, apology, and redress. In the United States, reparations have been made at various times to indigenous peoples and to Japanese American people in turn during World War II, among other groups. So we're seeing this $2 million commitment, Adam, that could be spent on youth programs and housing, as I said. What are you watching here as, as this story evolves? I think I'm
1: watching the follow-through on this. They certainly did a, a lot of work, a lot of research, hours spent on this, and they make this recommendation. And I I, I think the follow-through is going to be the question on all of this. You know, certainly they've laid out a very compelling case. and But, you know, when you're also dealing with municipalities and money, as we were t- just talking about with the tax subject, it becomes a little tricky sometimes times to find $2 million. And I I, I certainly think that they'll push forward, look for those sources. But I also think, too, there's that, you know, that balance of adding things to a town or city budget when, you know, you're also strapped and we're talking about skinny margins for the state budget as well. They can actually follow through on this. You know, this may be the blueprint for other communities who want to follow a similar path.
0: Yeah. And absolutely. The report even pushes for that. It goes on to talking to the, the financial piece, Adam, the report goes on to say that The the town of Amherst would need $600 million to erase the racial wealth gap. And Amherst has a town budget of $85 million. So we're not even close there, right? But the report adds that the ultimate goal is for state and federal reparations. Larry, do you think that the actions that have happened here in Amherst are proof that a community can look at this issue and have something come out of it that's tangible and you can point to and say, yes, this is a beginning.
2: Yes, it de- it definitely is. And it follows along with what Boston is doing and Cambridge is doing. You know, what I've been thinking about this is that it, you know, it shows the spirit of a community like Amherst to do the right thing. But the notion of this, of reparations or restorative justice, is to pay back a debt. And 2 million seems like a ridiculously paltry She's a
0: drop in the bucket
2: amount of money to say we are acting to correct past misdeeds and uh, racism and and enslavement of generations and generations of black people so that kind of stops me. If Amherst wants this to be a blueprint, I think there needs to be a lot of public understanding about this because I think most people hear the word reparations and you think, okay, we're going to settle this debt. It's far, far short of that. And I think we've had so much public opposition to the state's response to the asylum seeking and migrant mm-hmm. communities. Who are these people who are coming and using our resources? We talked about taxes and hard-pinched towns. I think a real wider conversation about this will go absolutely nowhere. And that says something pretty chilling about uh, the sense of justice and Mm. history in, in, in Massachusetts, a blue state.
0: If it is to go anywhere, I think it will take what it took to begin this, right? Which was a public uprising and a public outcry saying, this cannot stand and this will not stand. And then the leadership, it's beholden on them to say, we hear you and here's what we're going to do about it. The,
2: the programs that Amherst is anticipating moving forward on, they do that anyway. Hmm. I mean, th- these are communities that try to provide services that help advance people who are poor and have needs, social needs, housing needs, educational needs. They're progressive leaning. This is kind of right in that vein. So how is this different?
0: Well, you know, to that leadership point, Peyton, you and I were talking uh, yesterday about how there has been a tremendous amount of leadership change here in Western Massachusetts, whether that's town managers or mayors. We've got at least one police commissioner here uh, that we can point to in Springfield. And these are significant changes for communities across the board. And it's kind of this interesting juxtaposition between institutional knowledge, new energy, new ideas, different perspectives, but also something you pointed out to me that I thought was great, which is that, you know, some of these folks are leaving because they're not making enough in Western Massachusetts. So do you think that our communities can be competitive it enough from a salary standpoint? I think our communities can,
4: but for many of these positions, some people have been holding these positions for 20 years. And I wish I remembered off the top of my head the community I'm thinking of. I believe it was in one of our Hampshire County papers. But there was a town manager or administrator that was there for about 20 years, has been doing the job for the longest time, and is finally, he wants to retire. He wants to step back. And they're looking at the salary saying, well, this guy was happy to have it, and he wasn't complaining, but no, none of these people just are applying. Kept pace what's, it's yeah, not kept pace, so they're realizing in their budgets they have to significantly increase their salary for this position. And it's a big job in these communities to be taking on. It's definitely something we're seeing a lot of people swapping out of their current positions, trying to find greener pastures, people who've been there for a while looking for more money. I'm seeing a lot of people who are looking for less responsibility, smaller
0: communities downsizing a bit. Yeah. Adam, you've taken a look at this in Agawam and elsewhere. What do you think?
1: Well, I think, first of all, it goes back to the tax issue we were talking about a little bit ago, budgets are limited in some of these places that still require a town administrator or a town manager, and they can only pay so much without having to have an impact on the taxpayer. So that's part of the problem. You know, and I was thinking about it. I think sometimes when you look at this, oftentimes a town manager or administrator also works with a select board, which, you know, also can turn over. So I think sometimes when you have the synergy of maybe a new manager working with people who have been on the board or a city council, if it's a mayor for a while, sometimes that can help generate new energy and new ideas is at other times you, you have institutional knowledge, but at what point does that institutional knowledge block you from looking toward the future?
2: You know, it's got me thinking what you said, Adam, about all the other people in these town halls and school departments. These communities across our region have been struggling to, to hire people, not just the leadership and the wealthier communities will always be able to pay what I think are pretty inflated salaries for these administrating position, positions.
0: Most of them are well over $100,000. Oh,
2: Almost 200. Yeah. Yeah. But interestingly, last year, late last year, there were signing bonuses, big signing bonuses that both school departments and police departments, Chicopee did this, trying to recruit from each other's workforces, neighboring communities' workforces. There's a lot of unfilled school positions and town hall positions, and I think day-to-day in terms of service to, to residents that may have more uh, impact than even whether the administrator is you know briefing the select board properly.
0: Yeah absolutely and just one quick small town example of that in Palmer our building inspector they, they want to have a very part-time position as great for them they're controlling their schedule right but what that the implication for that in our community is people are waiting outside their mm-hmm. office sort of jockeying for their attention and get me on your schedule for inspection and how does that hold up building and development which goes back to that tax problem that we were talking about before.
2: You know since we we're really talking a lot about money today. Um, One of the things that Healy has thrown as as a possibility to cities and towns is increasing uh, taxes on like hotels and food. Um, I think we're going to see a stampede among communities to to make use of that if they get the green light. Mm -hmm. I agree with you there, Larry.
0: Yeah. Well, another huge issue here in Western Massachusetts is transportation. And the ever- an ever-going saga of East-West rail. I know it's something that's near and dear to all of our hearts here. Whether it's because we're interested in using it when, if it finally comes, when it finally comes to fruition, right? Let's 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 use that positive affirmation to get that done. Or if it's just something you've been covering, covering as a reporter. And speaking of Governor Healy, you know she pointed out that she she's committed to this issue. Uh, she called it an essential lifeline she did when she spoke to MassLive in December, and she said she continued to pursue federal funding for the long-awaited route that would link Boston, Worcester, Springfield, Pittsfield, and Albany, New York. Hopeful, help- hopefully, right? Uh, my skeptical, am I, I, you know, we're all kind of skeptical as, as by nature as journalists here, but where's your optimism meter on this one for 2024? Anybody wanna go first? You're all looking at me like, no, thank you. Larry, <laughs> no, go I'm ahead.
2: I'm optimistic. I wasn't for a long time. Um, You know, Healy may not be still governor when this actually comes to be. Yeah. But enough concrete things have happened, you know, in a funny way, like Greylock Glen starting small. um, The uh, federal transportation people talk about the possibility of eight round trips across this east-west network. Yeah. Okay. How about like Two, and <laughs> there there is that hundred and eight million dollars, which is going to improve track between Springfield and Worcester, which is you know, like a big piece of this. I think it could go forward. There are um, there's a in Healy's budget this year. There's a there's five people who are working on this project plus a director. So there's a lot of people actively working on it. Uh, we wondered last year whether the legislature would. Sort of screw this up, uh, they left.
0: They them. tried. They left Pittsfield and Palmer out of it, but then Healy snuck it back in. Yeah,
2: she put it in her capital budget. Um, so we'll see. But at least I think there'll be some, some restoration of service east-west, maybe from Springfield east. Pittsfield, you know, I, I love Pittsfield. I hope it stays on the, on the train here. Yeah. Uh, but it's going to take a while.
0: Yeah. And especially that I think about the Pittsfield and Palmer piece, it was $12 million that Healy was able to get back in for funding for smaller projects in both those communities, smaller, but very important for each of them. Is that a sign of creativity that gives you hope or are you just like, oh, we're going to have to beg, borrow and steal it if we're going to get any of this done? It definitely gives me hope. I'm a Munson resident, so I am your neighbor and uh, <laughs> I
4: would love to see a Palmer station. I would love to see it. I went to college with the... Uh, one of the daughters of the Steaming Tender restaurant owners, and she's been a huge advocate for this for a very long time. It's a really
0: cool space. It's It's a former train station converted into a restaurant. Yes,
4: it used to be the Union Station there, and they've been advocating to have a station put right, right by their site. And I think that I'm hopeful, not only for personal reasons, but I think it could be such a way for us to be bringing more people to these communities
0: adam you know the, you did a story back in august that talked about east west rail and you mentioned that the advisory committee was overdue to release its report back then in august you know have they coughed that up yet
1: yeah they did a few months ago kind of quietly and without a whole lot of fanfare and you know y- y- if you weren't really paying attention you would have missed it and i
0: did miss it so you helped <laughs> me out with that
1: <laughs> i think that the interesting thing is here you have a legislature Beyond the Western Mass contingent that doesn't seem terribly enthused by this idea. They cut that money last year that Healy kind of had to do an end run to get back in there. But then on the other hand, you have the ranking member of the Ways and Means Committee of the U.S. House representing Springfield. And, you know, I just wonder if the legislature starts to think about, well, maybe we can divert some of this money and fix up the green line in Boston if if Richard Neal doesn't put some pressure on them to say, hey, keep this money, that you know, make a commitment here. You know, he kind of did that with Charlie Baker, you know, a few years ago. I can remember a hastily arranged press conference I went to when the governor was kind of waffling on this idea, and all of a sudden he was for it. You <laughs> know, and the, the representative carries an awful lot of clout, and, you know, I, I wonder if his next step may be trying to get – uh, leadership in the legislature fully on board with this.
0: Yeah, I, I do want to keep this conversation going, but I am going to pivot us real quick because we're close on time, and I want to pick each of your brains about a story that you're going to keep watching here in 2024. We'll have you back in to talk about this uh, a different time, I'm sure. This is not going to be the end of this conversation. Larry, why don't I start with you, 2024, you know, what are you, what are you keeping your eye on? Can
2: I do three real quick? Very quick. New courthouse in Springfield. Okay. Where will it be? Who will build it? Um, what kind of change will that bring to Springfield? Uh, will some agency investigate clear evidence of vote buying ahead of the mayoral election in November?
0: In Springfield, yep.
2: Yep, yep. Um, and... Well, I guess I had
1: two.
0: Two's great. I love two. <laughs> Adam, how about for you?
1: I'll give you one. Um, I'm curious to see how the new Springfield, or soon-to-be new Springfield Police Superintendent, Lawrence Akers, handles things. You know, He received a lot of rave reviews from folks in the community when Dominic Sarno, uh, the mayor, announced his... Uh, soon-to-be promotion, so I'm curious to see if he's able to build a little bit of trust by community members in police and you know, how he continues to handle the consent decree with the Department of
0: Justice. Fun fact, Larry is my neighbor. (laughs) (laughs) Right now, I am looking
4: into the ESSER funds that all of our schools are really struggling with not having now. Those funds dried up, and so many of our school districts are struggling with keeping a level service budget. So we're focusing a lot on that right now in our communities.
0: Well, Peyton North, Larry Parnas, and Adam Frenier, thanks for running it down here with us this morning. I'll have you back soon. Thank Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you.
5: You're listening to The Rundown. I'm Jill Kaufman. In an ongoing feature of the show this week, we're taking a look at some of the reporting from the NEPM newsroom. In the early 1900s, four western Massachusetts towns disappeared from the map. They were flooded to build the Quabbin Reservoir. It provides drinking water mostly to Boston and dozens of surrounding communities. But those towns closest to the Quabbin don't have access to the water supply. And as NEPM's Alden Born reports, several are now experiencing significant water issues.
6: On a recent morning, two preschoolers filled glasses from a water dispenser in the cafeteria at the Swift River School in New Salem, Massachusetts. Life has been easier lately at the school. A new filtration system was installed after PFAS, also called Forever Chemicals, were discovered in the water in 2020 at more than double the state limit. This has been an ongoing headache for a long time. Kelly Sullivan is the principal. We eventually brought in bottled water for students and staff and to cook with. We shut down all of our bubblers and we had to put up signs that said, do not drink the water. Sullivan says the district had to spend roughly $45,000 on bottled water, but some parents were still nervous. We had families that didn't want children drinking water, so then they couldn't eat food that they thought might be prepared with the school's water, but we were using bottled water all the time and we offer free lunch to everybody. So that was a huge issue. Parents in Boston area communities like Lexington, Somerville, and Marblehead don't have to worry about PFAS and the water at their children's schools. It comes from the Quabbin Reservoir, which sits less than three miles away from the Swift River School. The Quabbin was created in the 1930s and required 2,500 residents in four towns, Dana, Greenwich, Enfield, and Prescott, to give up their homes and businesses. Author Elena Palladino recently wrote a book called Lost Towns of the Swift River Valley. In it, she describes a farewell ball held in April of 1938.
7: It took place on the night that the towns were officially disincorporated. It was held in Enfield, but people from all over the valley attended and it was sort of a funeral for the towns. It was the night that they passed into history.
6: In her book, Palladino includes a description written by someone who was at the party.
7: Muffled sobs could be heard from all parts of the hall, and many hardened men were noted making hurried grasps for their handkerchiefs. Children broke into tears as all realized that this was the last gathering of its kind in Enfield, and for that matter, about the last affair of any kind to take place in the community.
6: Paladino says what happened should not be
7: forgotten. I think it's really important that everyone knows where their water comes from, and for Boston in particular, who really enjoys this pristine water supply, doesn't ever have to worry about the water quality, that they understand what was sacrificed by people in another part of the state so that they could enjoy that.
6: Water quality is on the minds of residents where Palladino lives, the town of Ware, which borders the Quabbin to the south. Jeff McAmond leads the town's DPW and gets complaints from residents.
2: They're saying that the water is rust-colored or brown. I just recently had a call, and it it stains their toilets. It stains their dishwashers, laundry. It's really a problem. It's safe to drink, he says,
6: but difficult to live with. At the town's pump house, water foreman Brian Ruckey points to a historic marker above the front door. 1886. When a building was built, you got what's called a cistern over there. The wells pump from over here over to a cistern. Ware is only one of two communities in the state that still use a cistern, a brick-lined tank with a dirt floor. DPW director McAmmen says the system has been maintained, but it
2: has aged
6: out and a lot
8: of the water lines.
6: have exceeded their useful life. Ware explored privatizing its water system last year, but it didn't happen. Building a filtration plant would cost around $16 million. Residents are expected to vote this spring on whether to make improvements to the water system. You might be wondering why Ware doesn't just connect to the Quabbin, only three miles from the cistern. Several western Massachusetts communities did so in the 1940s and early 50s, Chicopee, Wilbraham, and South Hadley. But for Ware, connecting to the reservoir would be far more expensive than building a filtration plant. Whatever their solution, State Senator Joe Comerford, who represents towns around the Quabbin, says they need and deserve more financial help.
7: They struggle so significantly to have an economic base that's worth anything, to pay for their teachers, to pay for first responders. And we can trace it all back to this decision to disrupt, significantly disrupt life in this region in order that eastern Massachusetts could thrive.
6: In addition to eliminating four towns for the reservoir, the state took property from eight other communities to protect 75,000 acres around the reservoir. That land is now mainly forests and wetlands that help produce the high-quality water that comes out of faucets in eastern Massachusetts. The Quabbin towns receive payments in lieu of taxes, also known as pilots, to partially compensate for the fact that the land can't be developed.
7: I want us as a commonwealth to understand the price that the four towns paid, that the watershed communities continue to have to bear. And I want us to tell the truth about what it costs to maintain this watershed system.
6: Comerford has co-sponsored a bill to create a trust fund to generate three and a half million dollars a year for the watershed towns. It would be funded by a five cent fee for every thousand gallons of water that leave the Quabbin. The proposal would also increase the pilot payment so they're assessed on the land underwater. Right now, they're only paid on the surrounding land. That could be huge for New Salem, says Kathy Neal, the town coordinator.
5: Because the tax base is mostly residential,
7: it is sometimes a struggle because you're not getting taxes in from a commercial base, which would help, or industrial.
5: Oh, come on in. Hello.
6: At the door is Sue Cloutier, who chairs the board of selectmen. She said she was avoiding reporters calls but agreed to share her thoughts. She moved to New Salem from Eastern Mass, Wellesley in 1980.
7: I think when you think of us as a commonwealth, we're sharing the wealth and so a lot of the benefits that the people in the cities and towns that depend on the water from the reservoir and the rural community that supports that clean water, we we need more help and so to maintain the commonwealth. Monies need to be shared more appropriately with these rural towns that are struggling.
6: The Massachusetts Water Resources Authority, which oversees the Quabbin Reservoir, has recently explored the possibility of connecting more communities north, south, and west of Boston. After hearing from western Massachusetts lawmakers, the agency has agreed to also study what it would take to connect cities and towns closer to the source, including those right next to the Quabbin. For NEPM News, I'm Alden Bourne.
5: Let's go back now to 1974. That's when a man in western Massachusetts destroyed a weather tower erected to gather data for two proposed nuclear power plants in the town of Montague. That act of civil disobedience ignited what became a nationwide movement to stop construction of nuclear plants. Now, 50 years later, that tower toppling will be celebrated at a theater in Turner's Falls. John Kalish reports.
3: It was George Washington's birthday, February 22nd, 1974. On that cold, clear night, a member of the communal farm where Sam Lovejoy lived drove him to the Montague Plains where Northeast Utilities had erected the 500-foot tower. Lovejoy had visited the site several times before and knew that the inch-thick steel guy wires stabilizing the tower could be loosened with a crowbar. The wires were controlled by a piece of hardware known as a turnbuckle.
9: I undid one, and it didn't tip over. So I undid two, and it didn't tip over. And I undid three, and it didn't tip over. And I'm working on the fourth one, and I'm really paranoid because the tension on this thing is so tough. And all of a sudden, it let go, and the cables went bangety-boom, crashing against the tower, and it pulled itself over.
3: The tower went down at around 2 a.m., Lovejoy walked to a nearby road and flagged down a passing police car. The cops gave him a lift to the station where Lovejoy presented a typewritten four-page statement taking responsibility for the tower's destruction. He handed the statement to the desk sergeant.
9: He would read a sentence and look at me and then read three more sentences and look at me. In the second page, he was sort of scanning it a little more. And the third page, he was like, holy cow. He said, did you write this? I said, yeah. Is this your signature on the last page? I said, yeah. He said, you know, I'm going to have to arrest you.
3: Lovejoy was charged with destruction of personal property, a felony that could have carried a five-year prison sentence. He represented himself in the trial, where expert witnesses testified about the dangers of nuclear radiation. Lovejoy was acquitted on a technicality because the tower was considered real property, not personal property. But his stand against nuclear power reverberated around the country, and Georgie lived at the Montague commune with Lovejoy.
5: It was like rigging the bell
7: or Paul Revere. It was really saying, "Watch out! This thing is too dangerous, and we're gonna stop it." It was
0: the beginning of a movement.
4: No
3: Lovejoy barnstormed the country for three years speaking out against nuclear power. Here he is at a 1978 rally opposing two reactors proposed for Jamesport, Long Island. Let me tell you, there is now in every village, hamlet, town, city, anti-nuclear organizing going on everywhere all around this country. In the early 1980s, Lovejoy worked for Muse, a group of rock stars that raised money for the anti-nuclear movement. At the age of 40, he went to law school and later took a job with the Massachusetts Department of Fish and Game, acquiring land for recreation and endangered species habitat. His fellow civil servants were aware of his famous act of civil disobedience.
9: One guy said to me after I did get the job, he said, you know, I'd really appreciate if you don't screw up. You said, I was on the interview committee, and I sort of told him, you know, you're not crazy like it looks like on paper, you know. You're not gonna be knocking over any more towers, right? And I said, no, 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 no. (laughs) There was a particular moment in time where a particular action made eminent sense. Lovejoy and others at
3: the Montague Commune played a pivotal role in organizing the Clamshell Alliance, a New England anti-nuclear coalition protesting proposed reactors in Rhode Island and New Hampshire. The nuclear plans proposed for Montague were canceled in 1980 by Northeast Utilities, now known as Eversource Energy. Other plans to build reactors were scrapped in Oklahoma, Ohio, Florida, Indiana, and California.
9: They were canceled all over the United States. For years, the feds were sending money out to universities, fattening up nuclear engineering programs. But the fact of the matter was that, you know, for about 30 years, they just completely disappeared.
3: Last summer, for the first time in more than 30 years, a new nuclear power plant in the US began operation. Though some former opponents now see it as a necessary response to the climate crisis, Sam Lovejoy is still adamantly opposed to nuclear power. Lovejoy left the commune long ago, These days, he and his wife Kathy live in Montague. There's a small pickup truck in their driveway with a bumper sticker that proudly declares no nukes. For NEPM News, I'm John Kalish.
5: Commentator Roland Marullo and his older daughter recently decided to publish a newsletter. It's an ongoing conversation between a father and daughter who are 44 years and 2,000 miles apart. They've long shared a fascination with the unexpected places our fates take us.
8: As Zanny and I considered subjects we might discuss, one aspect of our family situation became clear. Distant as the two generations are in years, we're all in transitional stages. My younger daughter, Juliana, will soon graduate from college. Zanny's newly married, and she and her husband are figuring out how they might afford to buy a house and when they should think about having children. And at 67 and 70, my wife Amanda and I are entering the last part of life's journey. To complicate matters, all of us have a strong preference for the less traveled path. Juliana took a year off before college, and at 19, instead of coming home as we offered, chose to live alone for months in rural England during the COVID lockdown. After graduating from Phillips, Exeter, instead of attending college, Sandy volunteered with street kids in Naples, Italy, walked the 500-mile Camino de Santiago, then lived in Cambodia for two years. Maybe they were following in their parents' footsteps, because both Amanda and I have degrees from Brown, but in our mid-20s, she was waitressing and I was driving a cab both of us foregoing the more expected and much more lucrative careers upon which many of our classmates had embarked. Later, even with the financial responsibility of kids, cars, and a house, we stubbornly resisted the sensible attraction of a regular paycheck. I suspect that our shared pension for taking the road less traveled will guide all of us as we wrestle with the challenges of our disparate life stages. Maybe Amanda and I will retire to Sicily, Maybe the girls will run a food truck or coach soccer in Uruguay. Every human on earth in every chapter of life must deal with the future's unpredictability. It seems to me now that the choices the four of us have made, some wise, some not, have been a way of acknowledging that security, real security, is an illusion. We can make plans, we have to, but whether we choose the safest route or something else, the universe has its own ideas about what will happen along the way.
5: Roland Marulo lives in western Massachusetts. His newest novel is Desert with Buddha. The substack newsletter he writes with his daughter is called Hi Zan, Hi Pa. And that's our show for this week. The Rundown theme is courtesy of The Love Crumbs. Our director is Tony Dunn. Our board op is Phil Bishop, and our engineers are Betsy Langto, Cara Foster, Bart Rankin, and Chuck Dubé. I'm Jill Kaufman. Thanks for listening, and please join Carrie Saldo again next week for The Rundown.